I'm not surprised I'm lying on the floor of someone's oddly clean bathroom during a party. It's not like I even wanted to be here, but in my defense, I never want to be anywhere. When Tiana had talked me into this party, she was supposed to stay with me all night, but she disappeared the first 15 minutes of our arrival. I think she went chasing after Chris again, as if she didn't already know he was with the new girl we saw him with at the mall last week. Sometimes I wonder why we're even friends. Every party she drags me to, I end up hiding in some random room until she's gotten her fill, and then I'm allowed to go home. But only after she's gotten her fill. She says it's lame to go to a party alone. The bass was buzzing through my body as I rolled my head to the side of the bathtub. The white walls and cold tiles had been enough to lure me in. The airiness in my head hadn't let up even though it'd been a while since I had whatever drink the cute guy in the kitchen gave me. He said it was just punch. But I should have known that punch wasn't supposed to taste like that. I tried to find Tiana, but I couldn't make it but so far. Chris's friends were all scattered around the house and I couldn't get my mouth to cooperate so I could ask anyone where she was. Somehow I had managed to drag myself up the steps to the most secluded part of the house. I pushed on the first door I saw and ended up here in the pristine white bathroom of whatever sports team member's house we were in this night. I have no idea how I locked the door or how my dress ended up torn at the top and I don't think I was followed up here. I don't even think anyone noticed. My head felt too heavy to move, even as my eyes rolled around in their sockets, taking in the dimly lighted room. I tried hard to pull it together. My phone rang from somewhere across the room, and my neck twitched before I was fully able to lift my head. There was still music playing from downstairs, but I felt like that was miles away. Tiana's name flashed across the screen as messages from her flooded my phone. The letters danced together as I pleaded with them to settle down. One by one, I was able to make out the words on the screen. Where are you? Did you leave? Nobody's seen you for a few hours. Can you text me back? Your location says you're here. Chris says he thinks you went home, but you wouldn't do that to me, would you? You mean like you did to me? My inner voice chided. I chuckled weakly before pressing my finger to the phone, hoping that I was typing out a coherent message. What did he put in my drink? Why couldn't my body work? An assortment of letters floated into the conversation bubble that I sent, and I was certain that the word bathroom was in there somewhere. I slid my phone into the strap of my bra before I rested my weight on the toilet seat. I was finally able to stand with my weight leaned against the sink. As I looked in the mirror, a knock sounded at the door. Tiana's muffled voice was yelling over the music, asking if I was in here. But by the time I got to the door, Tiana was gone, and I was all alone again. found out about the fundraiser job at from Indeed.com. It was the summer after my sophomore year of college and I was jobless. 
no one wanted to hire someone who would only be home for about three months. The Post said, we are strictly dedicated to providing high-quality residential telephone fundraising programs for nonprofit organizations and democratic and progressive political candidates and causes. We are always looking for dedicated professionals. I was desperate for a job, so I responded to the Post with my name, number, and email address. They left me a voicemail the next day, asking me to come in for an interview. I guess they were desperate too. I'd never heard of before, so I decided to Google it. The reviews were not good. Will hire anyone off the street. Drug use in the workplace. Parking lot sucks. Bed bugs. And those were the mild ones. My personal favorite was, do not trust these people, do not donate to them, do not work for them, they are toxic. It sounded like it belonged in Regina George's burn book. The review was left by a man named Stu, and despite all of that, I went to the interview. I showed up to my interview wearing a black and white polka dot dress and a cream colored cardigan. The lady who interviewed me was wearing jeans and a pink Aeropostale long sleeved shirt. Her name is Meg. She asked me if I knew who our senator was. I did not. Then she asked me if I was a Republican. I said no. She said that was good because I probably wouldn't like working here if I was. We call on behalf of Democrats, she said. Then she had me read one of the call scripts and told me to come back later that day for training. There were three other people already there for training when I got there. They all sat around an oval-shaped table. The walls of the training room were white and covered in sad posters, which were really just sheets of printer paper with pictures and words printed on them. They had phrases like, corporations are not people, and will that be Visa, MasterCard, American Express, or Discover, please? The pictures were of people I didn't recognize. In order to become an fundraiser, I had to sit through two days of training and take an exam which consisted of a written section and an oral section. The trainer was a guy named Kevin. He had glasses and a bad haircut. He was over six feet tall and walked with his hands clasped behind his back at all times, his nose in the air and his chest puffed out. I think he believed that standing perpetually straight would stretch his stomach out enough to hide his beer belly. The only time I ever saw him bend was when he was talking to someone shorter than him, and instead of standing at a normal distance away, he would stand too close and lean over. He did this no matter where you were, in front of or behind him. It was worse to be in front of him, especially when you were sitting down and he was standing up, because then you had to crane your neck back as if you were about to engage in a perverted form of the Spider-Man kiss. Throughout the training, Kevin would constantly make jokes about who he referred to as Mrs. Jones. Mrs. Jones was every old woman who we would eventually talk to over the phone it always took three asks to get her to give, and if she agreed, she'd only ever give $10. Also, she never wanted to give out her credit card information and insisted on donating by check, even when we told her that, because of mailing fees, only about $5 would actually be donated to the organization. Stories about Mrs. Jones always prompted Kevin to say his favorite line, Take the money! He said getting a check for $10 was better than getting nothing at all, and I guess he was right. Kevin also liked to refer to the donors as suckers, something that made me feel like a bad person for working there. I later learned that Kevin was the only person who thought that, 
and that he was only made a trainer because he was so bad at being a fundraiser. This seemed counterproductive to me. Why was he teaching people to do a job that he himself was terrible at? The best part of the job was the people I met on the call floor. We sat in cubicles that were very close together, and in order to get through our shifts, we'd talk in between calls. My favorite person to talk to was a girl named Becca, but everyone called her blue, like the color of her hair. She was only a few years older than me, but had lived through so much that she could have been double my age. When she graduated high school, she decided to hitchhike from Massachusetts down to Florida when she was only 18. She stayed there for about a year until she was sick of the heat and then hitchhiked all the way back. When I was 18, I was enjoying the summer before my first semester at college. She called me a suburbanite and joked that I probably didn't lock my doors when I left my house. She was right. Shep was another person I enjoyed working with. He was somewhere in his 50s and he looked and sounded like he could be a radio talk show host for a rock and roll station. He had long gray hair that ended at his waist and a bald spot on the top of his head that revealed a boil as big as a golf ball. Every day he would come in with a sack of rocks to sell, rocks like amethyst and pyrite. He was jolly and had great prices and in this way he reminded me of Santa Claus. I was surprised to find out that instead of listening to classic rock, he only listened to Kate Bush. He played her songs during break and sang along. The worst part of the job was having to make three full asks before we were allowed to hang up, especially when the people on the other end of the phone were struggling in life. My lowest point as an fundraiser was asking a man two more times for money after he had just confided in me that he was struggling to pay his wife's hospital bills. She was battling cancer. I wished I could tell him that he didn't need to donate, he just needed to let me make my efforts so I could hang up, but my calls are recorded for quality and monitored, so I wasn't allowed to say anything like that or else I might be fired. I understand people's hesitation. We call from a blocked number and ask for money, but we're people too and we're just trying to earn a living. I always wanted to yell back at these donors, you think I like doing this? I don't. When I get these phone calls, I hang up before they even get a word out. I know how annoying they are, but you're not making it any easier, lady. Instead, I say, of course, that's a great idea. I'll be sure to tell my manager everything you just told me. Thank you, thank you. I never pass the message along. Even if I did, nothing would change. My manager just manages the calls of one of many call centers. He has no say. People will always get these phone calls and there will always be someone whose job it is to make them. I stared into the fragments of foam blanketing the surface of my latte. I moved the foam with a little plastic stick, trying to shape the pieces into little pictures. Not coherent pictures, more like features that I could interpret into a picture, like modern art. I swirled the coffee. I saw Eliza's face, 
Her accusatory eyes and wide open mouth made me feel like I was being attacked all over again. I swirled the coffee. I saw Lucky's unmoving tail poking out of the wheel of a Mercedes-Benz minivan. I swirled the coffee. I saw my own discontented face, my slanted eyebrows, my baggy eyes, my tiny frown. I needed to sleep, but my mind would not stop moving. I swirled the coffee. I saw a little bird. Its beak, wings, and body were all detached, but its feet remained perched on top of a stick. I took a sip, allowing the foam to rest on this inoffensive image. As I tried to set the cup down, I noticed that the sticky countertop was gone. I was no longer sitting on that bright red stool. The overhanging lights, the chirps of crickets, the comfortable emptiness of the little diner, every feature of the room had disappeared. All that was left was me and my drink. An invisible white light shone over my barren surroundings. Paralyzed, I drew my attention back to the bird. I imagined it using the stick to build the nest, a new home for its new family. The foam suddenly dispersed, transforming back into an image of Eliza. I swirled the coffee, nothing but erratic, drifting pieces of foam. My senses began to alert me to the approaching thing. I felt vibrations moving across my body. I heard violent rumbles approaching, gradually getting louder and louder. I smelled something like a mixture of tar and gasoline. I tasted something vaguely metallic. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a skulking black mass. I swirled the coffee. It slipped out of my hand. Before the cup could land on the ground, the room transformed into a black void. There was nothing to make a pattern out of. No formless shapes to interpret. No images at all. Just darkness. To avoid falling to insanity, I closed my eyes and imagined the patterns in my head. I imagined the night sky in the darkness. A clear, starry sky. Constellations. I looked into the stars and saw my coffee cup. It was the only thing that had been keeping me tethered to reality. Once it fell, I lost my physicality. Once it fell, I existed only as a presence. I looked into the stars and saw the creature. It was just a blurry mess of a constellation, but it terrified me. The fear of not knowing what it looked like outweighed the hypothetical fear of knowing. I looked into the stars and saw Eliza. She was smiling, her eyes sparkling with old love. I suddenly remembered the time that we lay on the beach, huddled up together, looking at the night sky. I realized how pathetic I was in that moment sitting alone, looking at stars that weren't really there. I opened my eyes and looked into the darkness. Desperately searching for something to focus on, I noticed the faint blue spots at the corners of my vision, remnants of light that vaguely looked like her. I tried to gauge my situation as I looked at the spots. I asked questions I was previously too afraid to ask. What happened? Where am I? How do I get out of here? What was the point of asking? Nobody was there to answer me. The panic set in as the spots began to fade. I tried to scream, but I couldn't hear myself. I looked down, but I couldn't see myself. I tried to stand up on the floor, but there was no floor to stand on. I tried to feel my body, but there was no body to feel. There was nothing. No sense of the world. No sense of the universe. No sense of anything. I lost my coffee. I lost everything. I floated in that space, refusing to close my eyes, 
refusing to return to the false security of constellations. I'm not sure how long I waited there. I initially tried to count the seconds in my head, but I quickly lost track. It could have been hours. It could have been days. Either way, it felt like years had passed before something eventually happened. A light began to shine in the distance. Though faint, it was just bright enough to allow me to look at myself. My body was still there. Plumes of blue-green smoke spread into the room, constantly shifting from one pattern to the next. It smelled like lavender perfume. Within the clouds of smoke, I saw the first house I'd ever bought, a small one-story thing that I was proud of nonetheless. I saw Lucky perched on my lap, purring gently in his sleep as I read my books. I saw a younger version of myself, happy, determined, tirelessly working on my novels. I saw my wedding ceremony, a happy couple overlooked by a jealous corpse on a cross. The clouds converged into the silhouette of a woman. She was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. Long hair, high cheekbones, large hips, large breasts. An extravagant wedding dress clung tightly onto her perfect body. She glanced over at me and I felt something I hadn't felt in a long time beating heart, swelling head, shakiness. Lulled into a state of half-sleep, I floated towards her. As I got closer, she seemed more and more perfect. I began to make out her specific features, her beautiful smile, her sparkling eyes, her delicate skin. At some point though, something in me changed. I remembered where I was. I remembered what had happened. I forced myself awake, but I couldn't stop it. Go back, go back, go back. I repeated the phrase over and over in my head. Go back, it's not real, go back. But my nerves rejected me. As I continued approaching, she began to change. The sparkling in her eyes was gone. Her modest smile became a toothy grin. Her voluptuous body sank into itself. Go back, go back, go back. I couldn't. I went closer. Her appendages grew drastically. I went closer. She began to tower over me. I went closer. She reached out to touch me. I looked up at her face and saw a constellation, Eliza's loving expression. That was the last thing I remembered before waking up in my bed. I'm not sure what she did to me. Perhaps I'll never know. But something feels different. Is there a different taste in my mouth? Different eyesight? Physical trauma? Psychological? Something feels wrong and I can't explain it. Sometimes I still look into my coffee and try to find patterns. I still look at the stars and try to arrange them in my head. But it's not the same. I no longer see the things I used to.
Sam has 67 pairs of socks on his floor. That's too many pairs of socks. 53 pairs too many. 14 would be okay because it would be one pair each day for two weeks and that's almost reasonable. But 67? That's nine and a half weeks of socks on the floor. Lila has nearly 30 plants in her apartment. That's too many plants. She was becoming a cliche. She really didn't want to be a cliche. She could see most of the plants from her burnt orange couch where she sat to knit, because she knit now too. Her cat, Snickers, was curled up on the arm of the couch. Lila sighed. She was one step away from knitting her plant scarves or something. Such a cliche. Julie has over 400 CDs. That's too many CDs. No one listens to CDs anymore. Julie doesn't even listen to CDs anymore. She lost her CD player in the move from home to here. She replaced it with an iPod. Alexis has 31 dictionaries. That's too many dictionaries. She tries to justify it by telling herself, her family, and her friends that it's okay because there are a few different versions and they all have different covers. Some are even pocket-sized. The content never really changes, though. There are only so many words. She's worried that it's getting redundant, but she can't stop. Every time she sees a dictionary, she buys it. She can't remember the last time she actually opened one. She uses the dictionary.com app now. Joey has seven options. That's too many options. He can't have seven dinners. Well, he can, but that would just make the problem too many dinners. He'll have to choose eventually, but how do you decide between Mexican and Thai? This happened last night, too. He went to bed still hungry. Jenny has 82 shot glasses. That's too many shot glasses. It's too many because she's been sober for three years. She refuses to part with them. She's put too much time and effort into collecting them. They're displayed prominently on a bookshelf in her bedroom. It's the only piece of furniture in there besides her bed. Sophie has six ex-husbands. That's too many ex-husbands. She got married for the first time at 19. She's far too young. After that marriage fell apart, she got married again two months later, and then again, and again, and again, and again. She couldn't stop. She's engaged again, now, to Bill, a man she met six weeks ago. She thinks that this will be the one that sticks. Seven is a lucky number, right? Maria has 43 gravy boats. That's too many gravy boats. She doesn't even like gravy. She didn't buy the gravy boats. Her husband messed up their wedding registry. She can't get rid of them, though. They were gifts. Because of her husband, they asked for 75. Thank God they only received 43. You've been listening to the Benji section.
For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit thebenjisection.com. Thank you.